All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 17th of November, 2020. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America business channel, and also want to encourage you to keep your questions, uh, any comments you might have, send them along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. I do like to encourage you to consider signing up for my newsletter. It's a weekly letter as well as a monthly letter that focuses primarily on the mining sector, the exploration sector primarily, gold and silver with the focus there. Uh, But we also send out a monthly letter and we did uh, send out our November monthly letter this morning. Encourage you also to consider signing up for Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling? Uh, go to, um, uh, you just go to uh, Chen Lin's uh, website, and his, uh, that escapes my memory at the moment. Uh, but uh, you uh, look him up, and you'll find him, Chen Lin. What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling? Um, the, um, we'd like to also uh, suggest that you, uh, that you consider uh, Michael Oliver's work. He will not be with us today. He'll, I expect we'll have Michael with us next week. Uh, it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Um, ChenPix.com. I just, it just came to my mind. ChenPix.com is a place to go for, for Chen Lin's letter. Uh, also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors uh, for, uh, for this week are Benchmark Metals. NV Gold, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Lion One Metals, Grand Portage, GMV Minerals, SK Mining Corp., and Cassier Gold Mining, Cassier Gold Corp. I've titled today's show, Why Inflation is on the Horizon. Lynn Alden Returns and Marco Rock visits for the first time. Corwin Co. of Sitco was uh, supposed to be uh, with us today, but he was unable to join me because of a major storm that's occurring on the West Coast. Uh, he did send me an email shortly before the show, and I spoke to him briefly uh, on his cell phone, which is uh, very rapidly declining uh, with the electric, with the uh, energy that he has left in the phone, and so he just felt that he couldn't be with us. He uh, said he traveled downtown Vancouver and saw all the lights were out, the stoplights, everything, so there's a major storm. Uh, at least on that part of the West Coast, and that has put Corwin out of commission uh, with us today. However, he did send along some notes. Things are moving along very nicely uh, for Corwin Co.'s company, um, Sitka Gold, and they're doing extremely well. 
uh, on their exploration efforts. Uh, They are a sponsor to this show. I'm not sure that I mentioned that a moment ago. Um, He he mentioned, he sent along this email, he said, uh, this storm is just really crazy. I'm not going to be able to be with you today. Uh, he, uh, He said that they are very excited about the company's prospects moving forward and expects to have additional drill results uh, from their RC Gold project in the Yukon any time now. And he it does expect sometime this week to have something out, he tells me, and then again next week. And I should say that they did have a very impressive early drill result of 139 meters grading 0.619 grams of gold per ton. I know that Corwin is extremely excited about the Yukon project. Um, that's of the three that he has, that's the one he's really most bullish on. And I think what's really important to focus on is this is a company that has three projects that are being drilled. It's got a market cap of around $11 million in U.S. money, or in Canadian money, actually. Uh, to me, it's one of the most underpriced, promising exploration stocks that I follow, and it is one of my major holdings personally. The company is also uh, starting a major marketing program uh, that so there are going to be more eyeballs on this stock. So if uh, people start to realize its value, uh, you could see an appreciation on that, along with some really good drill results, which I am anticipating. Now the company also will be uh, providing some information from its Burrow Creek Gold project, and it's a gold and silver project in Arizona. That's the most advanced project the company has. Very promising. A lot of upside exploration there. The real uh, wild card for this company is the Alpha Gold project in Nevada, and indeed the company uh, had they had drilled one deep drill hole, and the drill the drill uh, the drill hole wandered off in the wrong direction to a great extent. But they did get a lot of information, a lot of geological information uh, that they think is going to be very helpful. They are seeing some very promising signs in their search for a Carlin-style gold deposit there uh, in uh, uh, in Nevada along the Cortez Trend. I should mention, I, I, I noted that Michael will not be with us uh, today, but um, I should say that um, he did He did talk a little bit. I'll just pass along a couple of his ideas that he passed along this weekend. Um, November In his November 15 missive on gold, he said, despite the very sharp decline in the price of gold with, uh, with the recent vaccine, vaccine news, which really set the equity market soaring and uh, I guess gave people less reason to think they need to own gold. He says uh, that he's not, Michael expressed no worries at all about gold. He said, and I quote, at present there are simply no structures to break that are within shouting distance. Therefore, MSA does not think gold is at a top, end of quote. And then he went on to say that he would not be surprised to see a peak in gold of around $10,000 or so per ounce over the next year or two. At that point, at some point in time, he believes that uh, the, his momentum work will provide a very definite uh, exit point. Um, and so uh, just n- as one who watches and reads Michael's daily misses, almost daily, not every day, but very often, many times during the week he'll send out, uh, he'll send out his charts and his commentary uh, and it's almost always very, very helpful uh, in terms of knowing when to stay in something and when to get out. Now, he's not for short-term traders, but if you take a longer-term investment viewpoint, I don't know of anybody, never has anybody been better for me personally um, 
as a, as a technical analyst, uh, never has there been a better technical analyst for me personally than Michael Oliver in his work. And time and time again, when lots of people were getting nervous about gold, Michael's, Michael's work said, no, not nothing to fear. Stay with it. Uh, but just as surely, when the time comes to get out, he'll be telling us that too. And his call back in uh, 2000 and, well, right around uh, 2012, he got out in very good time, not at the exact peak, but certainly I wished that I had been following him at that time. I'm sure my portfolio would have fared much better. Well, um, as I mentioned, Lynn Alden is going to be with us, and we're going to talk to her about the inflation-deflation issues, uh, the prospects when you have trillions of dollars being printed. A lot of people think that's just a slam dunk for inflation. Well, it may not be so. It's more complicated than that. Um, Fiscal policy... uh, or not fiscal policy may come into play. Lots of different uh, different parameters, different uh, things that could take place that will be important to discuss with Lynn, and we'll, we'll get her thoughts on that. And uh, I want to ask her a little bit about Bitcoin, too, because it seems that Lynn has turned somewhat bullish on Bitcoin, and so I want to have a discussion with her about that. What does she feel about the vaccines, um, and to what extent will that help turn things around? Is everything going to be honky-dory now that we're promised a vaccine that's going to be on this uh, provided to us very soon within the number of months those and many more questions we'll be asking uh we'll be asking lynn about now we are going to go to a commercial break now uh but don't go away because we're going to talk talk to marco rock he is the ceo uh, of a new and very exciting company that i've just recently started coverage in my newsletter on that's cassiar gold corp and uh marco will be with me right after the break so please don't go away we'll be right back then Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Benchmark Metals is an advanced gold-silver exploration company that is rapidly advancing its Canadian gold-silver project to a production decision. Benchmark is nearing completion of its largest program to date, with up to 100,000 meters of resource expansion and definition drilling in 2020. The multi-million ounce potential project is expected to have a new mineral resource estimate and PEA study completed in 2021. The company is backed by the Metals Group management team and believes this aggressive program will be complemented by one of the strongest commodity bull markets in decades. Visit BenchmarkMetals.com and subscribe to follow their success. Cassiar Gold Corp. trades on the OTCQB under the symbol CGLCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GLDC. Its flagship asset, the Cassiar Gold Project, is a large advanced stage road accessible gold property with an NI43-101 compliant resource estimate of 1 million ounces at 1.43 grams per ton gold at the Taurus near surface bulk tonnage gold deposit and 15 kilometers of high-grade gold prospects. The property hosts several past-producing high-grade gold mines and is in search for the next multi-million ounce gold camp in British Columbia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time, Marco Rock. He is the CEO and director of Cassier Gold Corp. It's a new sponsor to this show. Cassier Gold Corp trades in Toronto under the symbol GLDC, and it trades down here in the United States. Um, you can buy it under the symbol CGLCF. Uh, 54 million shares outstanding at around uh, Canadian 56 cents gives it a market cap of around 30 million dollars in Canadian money. Now, uh, Marco started his career in private banking with Millennium BCP, that's a large Portuguese bank, and then he joined uh, Barclays Capital in 2007, where for several years he spearheaded the Portuguese derivatives and structured products team with a focus on commodities. And he is a co-founder of Reina Silver. It's a name that I think some of our listeners would be familiar with. It's a silver uh, exploration company with a portfolio of Mexican silver assets built around two assets that formed part of Mag Silver's original IPO. Marco is also a co-founder and director of Arabian Shield Resources. That's a private mining company engaged in the acquisition, exploration, development of mining assets in the Arabian Nubian Shield and surrounding regions of the Middle East. He is a CFA charter holder, earned an MBA from Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and London Business School, a master's in finance from Nova School of Business and Economics in Lisbon, uh, as well as an undergraduate management degree from that same school. Welcome, Marco. It's really good to have you with us. Thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. It's uh, it's great to hear this story, and I, I know that I told you I'm somewhat familiar with that uh, Cassier uh, Mountains and the uh, project years ago. But let's get right to your story. You have uh, you already have, and you know, in spite of the fact you've got a, a market cap of, as I just said, thirty million dollars, you've already have. A resource, a 43101 resource of a little over a million ounces, grading 1.43. This would be an open pitable uh, deposit. Uh, also, on your very large property, I, I know there are some some very high grade gold mining projects in the past uh, on a small scale, but nonetheless very high grade undergrade underground vein systems that exist there. Well, since this is the first time that you're telling a story, maybe I could just ask you. Uh, Give our listeners an, a view, an overview, really, of, of your project in northern BC and what your plans are as we head into 2021. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Jay. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Cassiar Gold is a Canadian explorer. Uh, our flagship asset, Cassiar Gold, is located in northern BC. So it hosts a foundational resource, 1 million ounces at 1.43 grams per ton for a 3101 compliance. It's a, it's a flat-lying, near-surface uh, resource with almost no overburden that is surrounded by infrastructure. We have Highway 37 bisecting our property. Actually, the resource itself starts literally uh, next to the highway. Uh, we have a permitted mill on site. We have multiple access roads. We have a camp. We have tailings. Uh, we have mine permits, and uh, you know, as you were uh, mentioning valuation, we are we are you know taking all of that into consideration, relatively undervalued compared to our peers. And then, very excitingly, we also have a really really world class team. We have names like the Kerwin, 
David Rees, James Maxwell, Steve Ledwin, and Chris Stewart uh, in uh, both our board and advisory boards. So in addition to that, to what we already have, we, uh, we have the potential to increase our bulk tonnage resource. That's our 43101 resource, in which we are, you know, just completed a drilling campaign and we'll be receiving results. So that's potential to increase that. But then, uh, as you also mentioned, on the South Cassiar part of our property, we also have uh, very uh, high-grade targets. And this is uh, this typical uh, orogenic gold deposit systems, high-grade gold and quartz veins, 15 to 25 gram per ton material that has the potential to be stacked for, you know, for long, you know, up to a kilometer, even more. So uh, uh, the old timers in the 80s and 90s scratched the surface and produced some very high grade. And our goal for 2021 is really to go to that part of our property, which is you know, roughly five kilometers south of our resource, and, and really start building um, a high grade resource in addition to our bulk tonnage resource, um, for which we actually already have an historical resource that, uh, that's in, uh, you know, 24 gram per ton material, but just, 100, uh, just under 100,000 ounces. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a really exciting opportunity with, you know, multiple avenues to, to grow. Indeed. Uh, well, I, you know, I'm familiar with, the, with one company that I covered in my newsletter decades ago, uh, Marco. Cusack uh, Industries is the name of the company. But I actually visited that property, and I, and I saw they, they were mining really just, just really following the veins. They were high-grade, very high-grade. Uh, quartz veins under the ground, underground, and they didn't really look at it the way people explore and develop things these days. Probably, I, I guess you're looking at it in in a larger scope. Like, what are you doing exploration-wise to sort of take the big picture and look at what you've got there south, where those high-grade uh, vein systems are known to exist? Absolutely. This part of of the property, South Cassia or, or Table Mountain, uh, this is where we have the historical production. The historical production, most of it was, you know, 17, 18, 20, 25 grams per ton. So, you know, as, as you mentioned, very high grade. I think in the past, you know, the, 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 the companies that operated it never had this, like, big, big picture, you know, perspective to, to see, you know, what is, what is the system that is feeding all of this. And uh, we've added to our advisory team uh, over the last few months, we've added Doug Kerwin uh, and we added Dave, David Reese as well. Uh, they're highly successful geologists, uh, multiple uh, awards and discoveries uh, that have worked in the biggest uh, orogenic gold systems in the world. And they, they recognize the potential there for, for, a, for a multi-million ounce uh, you know, stack uh, system of, of veins, not dissimilar to what you see in Barkerville from Osisco in, in British Columbia or in uh, Fosterville down in Victoria in Australia where, you know, you have in the 1900s people, you know, mining, you know, they, they think that's okay, we've, we've mined the, the, the things that are very close to surface, let's move on to something better. But actually, when you have a proper look and, and start understanding the system, there's, you know, th- these systems can really provide the potential for a multi-million ounce high grade that just keeps on giving. So that's that's really our focus. And, and next year, we're we're designing a 15,000 meter program uh, to really start uh, scratching the surface and going a little bit deeper and, and you know trying to uncover that uh, multi-million ounce potential. 
Well, certainly you, you've added uh, a structural geologist recently, I know, and uh, yeah, it's, it's all about the technical team when you get these large-scale systems. They can be quite complicated. I know that people, uh, exploration companies have the ability now with, with the technology they didn't have when I started writing my newsletter 30 years ago or so. Now it's, it's easier to see the big picture uh, than it was back in those days. G- getting back to your existing resource, I know you just put out some numbers. Uh, you put out some assays, I think perhaps four different assays, and it looks like you're filling in, sort of doing infill drilling, and is there a chance that you might expand that deposit uh, with your work this year yet, or is that something that you'll look to do next year, or, or what are you doing with the uh, the open pitable bulk mineable target that we're talking about, the million ounces? Yeah, absolutely. So the bulk tonnage uh, resource or the, the bulk tonnage part of our property, so Taurus, was really the focus for this uh, year's uh, drilling campaign. So we've drilled 5,000 meters uh, with the goal of, you know, confirming, infilling, and expanding our resource. So the resource itself at the beginning of the season was open in multiple directions. There were some gaps in the, uh, in, the, in the resource model. You know, the most, most of the drill holes were exploration and expansion. There was a little bit that it was infill. So... Uh, we already have the first seven drill holes out uh, out of the 24 drill hole campaign, uh, and we are you know they are very significant and very positive to us. So they've they've confirmed the historical results. We also had a gap in the model that uh, we've uh, intercepted mineralization, uh, so it lends itself to expanding uh, that gap or adding that gap to the resource. Uh, the drill hole, you know, all the drill hole, all the first seven drill holes. Uh, intercepted mineralization uh, and the grades actually of the intercept intercepts are actually also higher uh, than the grade from the resource so uh, we feel v- we feel very good for this uh, first set of drill hole we're very excited for for what's coming next as well the, the rest of the drill holes that which will be coming out over the next few weeks but uh, it i can i can consider this exploration program already a success and uh, at the end of this uh, drilling campaign we we already discussing that the potential of uh, basically updating our uh, 43101 which uh, which is also something that could be quite quite positive for us yeah i think that uh, your resource was figured under a gold price of 1300 or something like that i believe if i'm not wrong and yeah uh, and, and so we might see that would be one of the things I guess uh, shareholders should keep their eyes on, investors should keep their eyes on, is this updated uh, 43-101 uh, number that might be coming out very soon once you get these assays in. Yeah. And then um, your, your infrastructure is quite good up there, I believe, considering the fact that you're way far north in northern BC, yeah. right? Your infrastructure yeah. is very solid, very good. Essentially, uh, you're well-funded, uh, are you, through the end of this year, or you'll need to raise some money next year probably? Uh, now we're we're completely funded for good. this year and mm-hmm. the entire of the next calendar year. Oh, um, so you know we're very uh, good on that side of things. Uh, we're so we're completely we're completely fun- funded for our fifteen thousand meter drilling program for at South Cassia at the high grade for next year. Oh, that's good. Um, that's that's really yeah. good. So you're well funded. Yeah. Uh, so so in summing up, then what would you say we should really be watching for? Um, what should investors really be keyed in on? Yeah, and just uh, yeah, just to mention the infrastructure, you yeah. know, we the, the resource itself sits literally uh, next to the highway. Uh, we have a mill. Most of the resource is less than 100 meters deep, uh, and outcrops in some parts. And for the most part, there's no overburden. Uh, we have multiple access roads. Uh, we have a camp. Uh, so we have really outstanding infrastructure. Uh, and just to give you an an idea or an example on how 
efficient in how helpful this infrastructure is. We are this drilling campaign 5,000 meters. We are drilling at uh, 160 Canadian dollars per meter all in. Wow, that's, uh, and, that's, and that's very just good. a testament of despite you thinking you know Northern BC might be remote, that all this infrastructure and how close it is to our targets really makes it. Uh, uh, very uh, efficient to uh, to explore our 56,000 hectare uh, land package. Now, I just have to ask you this, and we're really out of time now, but as I look at the cross-section of your deposit, it looks like, you, as I think you alluded to it, the stripping ratio is going to be very low. I would think the economics yeah. should be very positive. Are there any thoughts about coming out with a with some sort of an economic study, a PEA or something on, on the project? Yes, I'm already thinking about that. I think... Uh, once uh, we uh, we finalize our decision about the resource updates, I think that will be the, the next uh, obvious step, and that's uh, and that's very exciting. But you know that's that's just part of, part of the story. I think uh, the you know the, the the drill results that will be coming out over the next few weeks will continue to make us very excited about the bulk tonnage resource. I, I think people need to think as well about uh, what we have at South Cassiar at yes. the high grade part of our property. Yes and think about the potential that we have there. We already have an historical resource uh, that is very high grade, and uh, there's multiple veins already identified, and these systems usually can be very, very big. So, so that's something that people should, should, should bear in mind. So there's really two, two really big stories here, the growth of the bulk tonnage resource mm -hmm. as well as the, the high grade for next year. Yeah, indeed. Higher grade is right. And looking at this sort of historical resource, we're looking at 18 grams, 24 grams, things like that. Very yeah. exciting, Marco. We are out of time. Uh, this is certainly one I'm going to be watching very carefully, and I think especially as next year gets underway uh, and you start looking to the south, those high grade things, you know, people like high grade numbers. That's what gets Absolutely. markets excited, no doubt about it. Well, thank you so much, Marco, for being with us, and uh, we'll look thank forward you, to keeping up the story as we go forward. Well, that is it for this uh, segment, folks, but don't go away because Lynn Alden will be with me right after the break, and Lynn is going to talk about the issue, well, what should investors be focused more on, the forces of inflation or deflation in these uncertain times. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Lynn Alden. America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. NV Gold Core, trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTC, is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi million ounce gold deposit in North America. With an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2020, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors including Eric Sprott, a globally recognized technical team, technical coverage from industry gold experts, and cash in its treasury. Visit NVGoldCore.com to learn more on this exciting story. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, Lynn Alden. Uh, Lynn uh, has, has a background uh, as an engineer, and uh, she's also been involved in finance for the last number of years, has really gained a lot of notoriety, and I think for rightfully so, her uh, her calls have been have been very solid, and she has uh, certainly has gained the respect and attention of uh, most of the major uh, financial networks. Um, and so we're really pleased and honored to have her with us again. Uh, her website is Lynn Alden, Lynn, A-L-D-E-N, dot com. And uh, there you can get a lot of very valuable free information, uh, her thoughts about uh, the markets, uh, I think very valuable. And she also has a, uh, she also has a pay-for uh, service as well that I've recently signed up for, also very much worth a, a very reasonable price, I might add. Then thanks for joining us again today. Hey, thanks for having me again. Glad to be here. It's really good to have you, and um, really, it's a, it's an honor. And I, I I've done, I've um, titled today's show "Why Inflation Is on the Horizon." Now that's my thought. I have a lot of friends that push back on that who are saying. Don't you know, Taylor, that de- that uh, debt is inherently deflationary, and can't you see we're going in debt like never before? Uh, exponential creation of money out of nothing. Well, it's not out of nothing; it's out of debt. So there is dollars floating around, but there's also debt on the other side of the equation, on the other side of the ledger. So, what are your thoughts now in terms of this particular point in time? Um, what what do you what are you most con- more concerned about? Uh, which side of the uh, of the argument? Uh, so long term, I do think we're heading towards an inflationary trend. Uh, mm-hmm. I, we've been in a 40-year period of disinflation. Uh, so so we still had positive inflation, but it was lower and lower, uh, you know, from the 80s to the 90s, uh, you know, over this past 40-year period. And there are some structural forces of deflation. Uh, so that's things like demographics are aging and slowing. Uh, debt levels have gotten very high. Uh, and also technology, uh, especially software, has been a very deflationary force, as has been uh, labor offshoring. So we have these kind of inherently structural uh, deflationary trends. Uh, countering that is uh, you know, the aggressive monetary policy that they've had uh, o- over this period of time. So you know, deeply uh, ne- uh, flat interest rates, so roughly zero interest rates, uh, they're actually negative when adjusted for inflation, uh, as well as very large uh, fiscal deficits. And when it comes to uh, you know, debt, there's, there's, of course, different types of debt. So private debt is in many ways different from, from public debt issued by uh, the federal government. Mm-hmm. And so one thing to keep in mind this year is that, you know, in, in previous decades, whenever the, the federal government, uh, you know, increased their debt, what they basically did was they, they issued treasuries uh, and someone buys those treasuries. So someone, you know, that they could have invested in something else, instead invest in treasuries. Uh-huh. Uh, and so then they, of course, run the deficit somewhere else. And so what they're basically doing is they're extracting capital from somewhere in the economy and injecting it back somewhere else in the economy. And mm-hmm. so, but what's different, uh, you know, in in this past, uh, especially this past year, uh, but, you know, this is kind of trend that we're going on, is that now uh, they're not extracting it from the economy. 
the, there's you know the economy is already very saturated with treasuries, and so what's and foreigners the foreign sector is not really buying uh, treasuries either uh, at any kind of large scale compared to how much we're issuing. Uh, so the Federal Reserve is creating new bank reserves to buy those treasuries, uh, and so basically what we're doing is we're not extracting that capital from the economy. And, and but we still are injecting it into the economy with these large deficits. And so that tends to increase the broad money supply uh, in a way that not even 2007 and 2008 uh, increased it at this pace. Yeah. And so I guess you'd call that monetization of debt, right? And what, Essentially, yes. Uh, and so how much of it is being funded by the Fed by money created out of, out of nothing? Do you have uh, so a sense of that? Yes, it depends on what time period you look at. Uh, you know, over the past uh, year or so, that more than two trillion uh, in treasuries have gotten onto the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, so it, it's been more than half of of the issuance over the past year. Uh, and then they've also assisted the commercial banking sector in buying treasuries as well. Uh, and so that's actually another way that it gets kind of uh, you know spent mm-hmm. without being extracted. Uh, whereas uh, in on the other hand. We've seen the the percent of treasuries owned by the foreign sector uh, go down substantially, not because they've uh, aggressively sold, but they just haven't been buying. So as the debt has gone up, uh, the the, the kind of static amount uh, that is owned by the foreign sector has become a smaller percentage. Uh, so a greater percentage of it is winding up in the Fed balance sheet. I just, uh, I mean, what rational reason would there be to own treasuries other than you need liquidity? And I guess pension funds and so forth, they have to... I don't know. I mean, when you're when you have negative real rates, why would anybody in their right mind want to want to, or have to buy treasuries? So there are a couple of reasons. Some some uh, institutions are mandated to for risk reasons. Like you know, there's there's mm-hmm. you know, there's kind of mandates and frameworks that have been in place for years or decades, uh, and uh, so they have to have capital somewhere, and they put some of it into treasuries. Uh, and it also depends on where you look on the curve. Uh, so for example, uh, investors on the long end of the curve have done well this year uh, because as interest rates went down, they had a lot of capital appreciation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that was kind of a speculative, uh, you know, kind of hedge or trading investment decision. Uh, so the, some of the people that think we're going to get deeper deflation before we have inflation might, for example, buy the long end of the treasury curve, mm-hmm. thinking that rates might fall, you know, even that the long end might go all the way to zero uh, or even negative, as it has in some European countries, for example, and they would get a big uh, capital gain from that. Mm-hmm. So there is there is still some speculation there. Uh, and in addition, I mean, just, you know, if you look at how the 401k industry evolved, uh, you know, most funds now, uh, you know, people are signed up automatically for, for 401k injections when they, uh, you know, they, they get an, a new employer. And most of that goes into target date funds now. Uh, so that goes into the S&P 500. It goes into bond funds. It goes into this kind of, uh, you know, inherently kind of diversified pie chart of assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's almost all stocks and bonds. And so there's this kind of constant trickle of new money into things like treasuries. Mm-hmm. I think maybe... Um the definition of inflation is always important because I think most people think of inflation as, you know, the CPI, a, a number the government puts out uh, that I think, frankly, is somewhat bogus. It's not necessarily real. Um, you know, they started hedonic pricing uh, long about Ronald Reagan's term and uh, uh, substitution. They do all kinds of things, gimmicks. Uh, John Williams, an economist that we have on our show from time to time, uh, an independent economist who's been around for quite a few years. Uh, tracks the inflation rate, and from his from his work, suggests that you know we're seeing inflation rates of closer to seven or eight um, percent. 
I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but if you look at some of the things you can't import into the United States, like college education or medical costs and so forth and so on, uh, I don't know. But, uh, but, but on the other hand, I'm wondering, the Austrians, uh, the Austrian school, they look at inflation or deflation in terms, simply in terms of the money supply. And we certainly have seen, you could argue, inflation in asset prices in housing and in stock markets, in the bond market we just referred to. Uh, is that not, not one form of inflation when money is created that, you know, it isn't counted or considered inflation, but what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Uh, I just had a newsletter on this subject, and so uh, I broke it down into three types of inflation. So one is uh, monetary inflation, uh, as you point out, the Austrians term it, uh, and that's just growth of the money supply itself. Uh, and so that's actually been very rapid this year. That's been over 20% this year alone. Uh, and uh, over the past uh, several years, uh, depending on exactly what time period you look at, has been in the, the high single digits. So in, in the 7 8 or 9% range, depending on what time frame you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that we do have monetary inflation. Uh, and that, that can come either from bank lending or from the previous I, process I described, which is running very large fiscal deficits that are being monetized uh, for the most part. So that, that's why we've seen such a rapid increase in broad money supply this year. Uh, mm-hmm. The second type would be asset price inflation. Uh, we've also seen that. So for example, uh, the, the valuations of equities, real estate, uh, bonds, uh, uh, things like that, uh, they've, done, they've generally kept up with that uh, monetary inflation. Uh, and then when you look at uh, consumer price inflation, uh, by some measures, that's the only area that, that's lagged to some degree. Uh, but, of course, we've had you know, pretty strong inflation, uh, consumer price inflation in healthcare, uh, you know, education, childcare, uh, all sorts of services that, as you point out, can't be outsourced. Uh, and that's been partially offset by uh, deflation and things like electronics and, and, and software that's kind of replaced a lot of our devices and, and kind of enhanced productivity. Uh, but then we also, of course, have, you know, as you point out, errors of measuring it. Uh, we've also enjoyed a period of relative commodity abundance uh, just because, you know, we've had unprofitable shale oil uh, supply come online in the past decade. Uh, you know, we've had, you know, we had big uh, copper developments in the past decade that we're still kind of enjoying to this day. We're not really running into inherent scarcity in most commodities. Uh, so there's a couple triggers that could cause uh, even even CPI as currently reported uh, to increase, and that would either, you know, potentially be an increase in broad commodity prices if you start to get uh, pockets of scarcity. Uh, or you could have, for example, uh, labor onshoring. So we've had, you know, it's actually been about a, a decade now where uh, the, the offshoring trend has been slowing down. Uh, and now it's it, it looks like it's showing signs of, of reversing, which is partially, a, you know, a, a political outcome. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's definitely something to watch that if we start reshoring labor, uh, that, that could show up in broad uh, prices. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, uh, you've made the point, I think the last time we had you on, you talked about the, uh, the need now for the need for fiscal stimulus, that monetary uh, stimulus doesn't work. I guess the reason is because banks aren't lending, can't lend really. They don't, they're not lending, I suppose, the people that are credit worthy don't need the money. And then there's, I mean, who would want to lend as a banker? In this environment, it would be far and few between, I would think, given the, especially since COVID. Um, but do you really see the necessity now? I, I believe you do from what I've read before and what you've said before, that you really see the need for more fiscal stimulus. And if that's the case, what do you, do you think that's in the cards as we 
as a new administration takes over? Uh, so I think one thing they have to do is target things better. And so one thing I pointed out, for example, is that over the past uh, couple decades, uh, we've reduced corporate taxes, which is good, uh, and we've reduced uh, you know certain t- other types of taxes. However, payroll taxes have been very high. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, healthcare expenses, uh, you know, that are mostly burdened by, uh, you know, employers are the ones paying big chunks of that for their employees. Mm-hmm. They've they've skyrocketed. Uh, that's been a, that's been a, a type of inflation. Mm-hmm. And so what we've seen is a bifurcation between companies that are not labor intensive uh, and companies that are very labor intensive. So if you have a software company, you're enjoying the lower corporate tax rates. Uh, but you're unburdened by the fact that payroll taxes are still high and that you know healthcare expenses for employees are still high. On mm-hmm. the other hand, if you're if you're running a company that you know makes physical products or employs a lot of people, especially if you you know cover their healthcare and you know they're they're not just you know they're not just minimum wage employees. They're actually you know uh, skilled you know skilled employees that that uh, are well compensated. Uh, that's a a very tough business model, and that's where a lot of the businesses have had to really lay off people and outsource uh, their labor. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know there are kind of things they could do, such as you know cut payroll taxes and things like that. That would be stimulatory on some of the the businesses that have been kind of hardest hit by things over the past decade. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think you know policymakers are going to have a choice in the next uh, you know several years, which is you know they can do nothing, and we're going to start to see kind of increasing defaults and probably eventually have a, a banking system crash, and uh, or uh, you know there. It ultimately is going to end with a devaluation of the currency in one way or the other, and the decision is whether or not they want to do that in kind of a healthy and targeted way, or whether they want to end up doing it in a in a, a messier way. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, with the current kind of political outlook, it appears that we're going to have a Biden victory, and it appears we're probably going to have a red Senate. Uh, so my base case is is uh, probably not a lot of major action over the next two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if a, if a red uh, or Republican Senate might be more inclined to go along with the tax cuts on labor. Um, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. So do you, do you see uh, a sort of a divided government like that with the Senate remaining Republican and the House, the White House being Democrat as uh, making it more difficult for stimulus, for, for fiscal stimulus then, I, I would imagine? Is that your thinking? Yeah, it takes it takes some of the the larger stimulus options off the table, uh, and and of course you know that people have different opinions on whether that's good or bad. But it, you know just from a you know analyzing asset mm-hmm. prices uh, of different things, it's just a variable to consider. Uh, and uh, but I do think they're probably going to be forced to do something uh, just because we we would eventually have kind of a uh, probably another wave of civil unrest uh, if this were to play out with you know a zero stimulus, right? Because mm-hmm. you're going to start to see. Uh, you know, people get evicted in greater numbers and things like that. And so there's this kind of this natural uh, socio-political feedback loop that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, for example, you know, even though we had a red Senate, uh, we had a massive stimulus bill uh, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was just because uh, the, the economic damage was, was so severe and we came into this already so fragile. Uh, and so I'm expecting they're probably going to do something small in the years ahead. Uh, but, uh, you know, either way it plays out. I think the key thing is to have some degree of diversification and to be in assets that don't require stimulus, uh, but that would also serve as a hedge against currency devaluation in the case you know that you do get stimulus. You know, currency devaluation could be a, a frightening prospect, I think, in terms of uh, inflation and uh, would be not, not a good thing. Um, so if, um, if we, if, which way, so are you more concerned now about deflation? 
I kind of hear that from you, uh, that deflation in the, in the traditional sense of CPI. Uh, so my, my, my long-term outlook is inflationary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that uh, between now and the spring, uh, you know, I, I'm not expecting a ton of uh, CPI inflation uh, during, say, the next three months or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because you know, we have this current COVID wave, we're entering the winter. Uh, some of the vaccines, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're more of a 2021 story if they pan out. Uh, and, uh, uh, and just because, you know, we'll see what happens with the, uh, election contestation. We'll see what happens with, uh, uh, stimulus over this, this time period. Uh, so I'm not expecting kind of major devaluations to occur, uh, in the next three months or so. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I would say I'm kind of, I'm kind of neutral to, to slightly disinflationary, uh, you know, in kind of the near term. Uh, mm-hmm. but I remain mostly positioned towards, uh, a longer term inflationary outlook. Uh, but I do keep a, a degree of cash, uh, on the side of, you know, in, in, in allocated in different portfolios to take advantage of any deflationary shocks or, or, or things that might happen along those lines. Yeah. Well, Ray Dalio says cash is trash, and I can, I can kind of understand that, but, uh, but maybe not as much. And yet, and certainly, we've all been through these, uh, you know, sudden the, the bottom falls out of the equity market, and we're stuck with, with things we don't, we just wish that we had the foresight of, of building some cash uh, before the uh, before before the bottom falls out, for sure. So 2021. I mean, the equity market when it heard the Pfizer news uh, a week ago or so, got really excited. I mean, I saw fifteen hundred dollar fifteen hundred up on the Dow before the market opened. I mean, I mean, it, it, the Fed though is going to pump money. It's got to pump money uh, because there's nobody, as you pointed out, lending to the or at least there's a shortage of lenders. So even if there's not a lot of fiscal stimulus, there's going to be huge deficits. You would agree with that, I guess, right? And then yeah. the Fed is going to have to print, which I guess if you don't get the fiscal stimulus, then the money just keeps piling into the equity markets and into real estate or whatever, and you still and you have this growing disparity between rich and poor. Yeah, so my, my base case is uh, you know, that certain assets are, are still likely to do well. Uh, so you know, I'd be careful of some of the the, the most uh, risky plays, uh, things like commercial real estate or some of the airlines, movie theaters, things like that. I do, however, like some of the cyclicals. You know, whether it's you know things like I like airports. I don't like airlines, but I like mm-hmm. airports because they have a wider economic moat. Uh, I like some of the you know steel makers. I like some of the more industrial kind of cyclical companies uh, as part of a diversified portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I still uh, you know like uh, precious metals. Uh, I like a, an allocation to Bitcoin as well. So I, I, you know, having kind of multiple bets placed on multiple different asset classes uh, in the event that you know whether or not we get stimulus or not, uh, these are things that are uh, uh, you know well constructed to survive uh, you know over the next year or so, regardless of how many you know evictions happen or how you know whether or not we get a deflationary crunch before we get inflation or whatever the kind of uh, outcome might be. Uh, some things that are just inherently strong uh, that I think can hold up well. And you, uh, how often do you publish for your paid subscribers? Uh, so my base case is every two weeks we have a report out, uh, and then sometimes during market volatility or unusual events, I publish an extra piece. Yeah, and your service is uh, is very reasonable. I can't remember exactly what I what I paid, but what is it? Uh, that's it's uh, for the full year. It's one hundred and ninety nine dollars. Very reasonable. <laughs> it is it is excellent, no doubt about it. Uh, you, you mentioned Bitcoin, and I have to ask you because you put up, I haven't had a chance to read it. In fact, I just noticed it. Uh, you published it on uh, just on the 12th, uh, so just very recently. Seven misconceptions about 
Bitcoin. Could you share some of them with us, perhaps? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is a very uh, controversial asset class. Uh, and, you know, especially between uh, there's Bitcoin investors that hate gold. There's gold investors that hate Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I'm in the camp where I, ha- I have both. Uh, and so my, I originally covered Bitcoin uh, with a piece back in 2017. Uh, and I was neutral to bearish on it. Uh, so I took no position. Uh, there were a lot of risks at the time. Uh, and we, of course, had that blow off top that I mean, mm-hmm. then we had like a big, uh, you know, kind of a two and a half year uh, correction consolidation uh, earlier earlier this year in April. Uh, Bitcoin, uh, you know, during that big kind of March sell off, Bitcoin fell. And then during the recovery phase, it was about sixty nine hundred. Uh, and I went long in the research service. Uh, and I've been kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, providing a bull case since then. So right now, as of today, it's over seventeen thousand. But of course, it's a very volatile asset. Uh, so, you know. The misconceptions mainly revolve around uh, how uh, liquid it is, or how volatile it is, uh, or uh, you know whether or not it can be banned. And so, uh, you know, I, I did a, a two-part piece on it. So a piece er- earlier in July kind of set the overall foundation for why uh, it can be considered to have a store of value effect uh, uh, as a network effect, uh, which uh, some people. Uh, from the gold world, understandably, are skeptical about Bitcoin's storage value. But that that first article kind of addresses why that's been uh, working out for Bitcoin over the past year. Uh, and then the second piece uh, just kind of addresses a miscellaneous uh, uh, emails or questions that are pretty common, such as uh, you know whether or not Bitcoin is energy efficient, whether or not Bitcoin's transactions can scale enough, things like that 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 are often kind of uh, you know, questions or risks that people have uh, before deciding to have, you know, a small Bitcoin position. What, uh, I mean, does, bin, does Bitcoin have any intrinsic value? I mean, I own gold because it, it is real. It's something I can hold in my hand. I can use it uh, probably if uh, under certain circumstances as, uh, as a medium of exchange if need be. Um, I mean, I guess as an old guy, Bitcoin is a little hard to understand. My son, Scott, understands it better. And he tells me uh, that I should uh, that I should buy uh, what is it BTG here I have it I have it oh uh, GBTC I guess is a is a uh, is a way to buy it uh, it's not what is it like an ETF I guess right are you familiar kind, with that it's kind of it's a trust it's not an ETF but it's a fund that owns Bitcoin a trust. Uh, so it's kind of like a closed end fund okay and uh, risks with that do you have an opinion on that. Uh, so I have a small position in GBTC, uh, mainly because it's one of the few ways to get Bitcoin exposure in a brokerage account, mm-hmm. uh, whereas most of the ways to get direct Bitcoin exposure uh, are outside of brokerage accounts uh, in exchanges or, or things like that. So I have I have a cold storage Bitcoin position, but then I also have a small uh, position in GBTC. Uh, mm-hmm. And as far as intrinsic value is concerned, uh, so one one analogy I make to gold is that gold, you know, if you look at the the demand for it, about ten percent of it is an industrial. And the rest is jewelry and as a store of value. Uh, mm-hmm. So a lot of the the price premium that, that gold enjoys uh, is is based on its unique characteristics that make it ideal as a store of value. Uh, and so it mostly benefits from the strong network effect uh, that we know that it has very long, multi-thousand year history of being perceived as a store of value, and that you know we could we, we could always find someone that would take our gold for a certain amount of value mm-hmm. uh, if we needed mm-hmm. to. Uh, so with Bitcoin. Uh, essentially, it's the entire value of it is based on that network effect. So it has no industrial utility, uh, but what it enjoys uh, is the fact that it's it's scarce, uh, and uh, compared to every other cryptocurrency, it's far more secure because all of them have lower uh, hash rates protecting their blockchain, 
Uh, so they're actually pretty cheap uh, for a large uh, entity to try to attack. Uh, whereas Bitcoin itself has so much security and so much hash power that there's, it's very challenging for any sort of entity to attack it uh, and, and try to break the blockchain. And mm-hmm. so it becomes kind of the only viable cryptocurrency uh, that can be you know, considered to be a store of value. And so one of the advantages of it is that it's accessible to people around the world uh, that for many of them don't have access to gold even. So, for example, mm-hmm. cryptocurrencies are particularly uh, popular in emerging markets. Uh, and you know, for places that have had a lot of currency failure, uh, one of the things they can do is they can put their funds into Bitcoin. And it's actually at that point, it becomes more internationally tradable than even gold. So, for example, if you were to try to move gold uh, you know, internationally through an airport, uh, you'd mm-hmm. run into issues and questions and things like that, whereas Bitcoin uh, is much easier to transfer internationally. So it has uh, certain advantages. Like you can think of it as a, a payment network. Uh, and you know the reason that there's never been another cryptocurrency to come along and, and kind of take market share from it out of the thousands is that you know Bitcoin just has a much stronger network effect uh, similar to Facebook uh, and similar to some of these kind of uh, social sites where it just keeps kind of growing and taking market share. Mm-hmm. What about government and central banks? Uh, it doesn't seem as though they would want to let their privileges go uh, and be compete uh, and have a competitor like Bitcoin. Aren't they likely to try to to grab a hold of that or somehow? Can they do it? Would it uh, be so possible? That's, that's a risk to consider, and that's been that's been uh, Bridgewater founder Ray Dalio's main concern is that if it does well, governments will ban it. Uh, and there, of course, is a precedent for the U.S. government banning gold, for example. Sure. Uh, and a couple points to consider. One is that it's becoming a pretty large asset class, and now it's on two uh, publicly traded companies' balance sheets, uh, so mm-hmm. MicroStrategy and Square. Uh, it's also uh, increasingly owned by hedge funds. Uh, you know, Investors like Stanley Druckenmiller are now in it. Uh, and in addition, we have uh, major custodians like Fidelity uh, building out custody solutions for in- institutional-grade clients. And so at that level, it's basically getting uh, so entrenched uh, that it, you know, the larger it gets, kind of the harder it is to ban. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then of course, even if they were to ban it, uh, that creates a game theory effect where another country can say, okay, we're not going to ban it. Mm-hmm. Uh, come build your businesses here. You can run right. your changes here. Uh, and so I do think that that banning is potentially kind of one of those kind of intermediate term risks. Uh, but long term, uh, the network is pretty resilient to individual governments trying to ban it. Yeah, I can't imagine governments not wanting to get. I mean, they certainly want to know what transactions you're involved with and would want to get a piece of the action through the tax code Yeah. Uh, no matter where you're at, I suppose, right? And so uh, I did buy a few shares of this GBTC this morning at uh, $19.69. I look on my screen now, it's $1.28. Not bad for one day's work, I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> work, in quotes. Yeah, it's, it's very volatile. It'll, it'll probably go up and down big. Yeah. Uh, well, Lynn, it's just really, really great to have you with us again. Always a lot of great insights. Uh, certainly, I would just suggest to my listeners that they pay attention to what you're doing. Uh, LynnAlden.com, go there and sign up for Lynn's free free letter for sure. But more than that, um, consider subscribing to her service for under $200 a year. It's pretty hard to beat that. Uh, I must say. Lynn, thank you so much for being with us, and all the best to you, and we'll look to do it again sometime soon, I hope. Yep, best to you as well. Thanks for having me. All right, you bet. All right, folks, well, that is all the time we have for this week. Next week, uh, John Rubino will be with me, as well as Michael Oliver and Dr. Quentin Henning. Until then, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. (laughs) 
Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. 